Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. I want to start by saying Happy New Year. I hope that God will do great things in your life in 2018. I also want to say thanks for taking time to listen to our latest sermon. It's a sermon that I didn't preach, but one that I think is going to benefit you greatly. It'll play in just a minute, and I'm excited for you to hear what Matt has to say about Jesus being the greatest storyteller. Before it plays, I do want to encourage you to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. If you subscribe, which is absolutely free to do, you'll be notified when we upload a new sermon, which is something we do every single week. We have some incredible content planned for 2018. We have some things coming that I think are going to be impactful, and I want you to hear it. So again, if you haven't done it already, please take a moment and subscribe. As always, I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Well, first, uh, I'm so happy that uh, Pastor Chad uh, let me do this series. I'm I'm very thankful for it. Um, It's the last one. Um, And, of course, we've been talking about Jesus as the greatest storyteller. Um, He was able to take the truth and wrap it up in a way uh, that people who weren't apt to hear it could hear it. He took the familiar things in their life, in their culture, in their world, uh, and he used them to explain the unfamiliar because, as we talked about last week, sometimes If we just tell the truth plainly, it's like trying to explain the unfamiliar with the unfamiliar. It doesn't work. We talked about the parable of the mustard seed and how when we are invited really into God's story, it takes over our lives. And then I ended by saying that the reason that Jesus is the greatest storyteller is because he has the greatest story. And see, you need some material in order to have a good story. Um, If all I did every single day was sit on my couch and watch reruns of Friends, and then I were to tell you a story about what I did, it frankly wouldn't matter how good of a storyteller I was. It would be pretty boring. Because it's not a good story. I don't have the material there. And each, each night or often I will go into my son's room when he's going to bed because I can put my son to bed in like 30 seconds. It takes my wife two hours because he knows all the buttons to push with her. But I'll go in there and I'll tell him a story. Now, he, he really tells me what it is that he wants to hear. And uh, he'll tell me who's going to be in it. And, of course, he's always in it because the best stories include us. Um, and, and I tell him these, these stories and he loves them. And they're always kind of wacky because he has uh, some wacky ideas. He's a little bit strange, my son. Um, last night was a story about a monster Um, who eats his shins. That's what he wanted. Uh, A monster who eats his shins. Um, We we convinced the monster to eat carrots instead, however. Um, 
But these are, these are the wacky stories. And kids, they love stories. Kids love stories. But adults love stories too. I love stories too. There's something about a good story. And what's awesome is that neurologists and, and, and social scientists are actually now confirming something that philosophers and, and uh, artists and our best storytellers have known forever. And that is that we are actually hardwired for story. We understand the world through story. We in many ways are participating in story. We are story-formed creatures. It's no wonder that the beginning of Genesis begins with a story. Because we understand how we exist in this world through story. And one of the, uh, a very prominent philosopher by the name of Alistair McIntyre said this, before we can answer the question, who am I and what am I to do? We must first answer the question, what story or stories am I a part of? And the truth is we, we live and we die by the stories that we tell each other. Stories that we might have grown up with. Stories that the world might be telling you about what you need to do or how you need to exist in order to be successful, in order to be liked, in order to be attractive, in order to get the things that you want, in order to be appreciated in the way that you want to be appreciated. We understand certain things about the world through story. And when these stories are false, we, we can become in bondage to these stories. We can get stuck. In her book, Rising Strong, Brené Brown says, we all have stories that we're telling ourselves. And until we get honest and own them, they will continue to define us. See, when we let false stories define us, it prevents us from living in another story, a better story, a truer story. And that's the story that I want to discuss. It's the story that the Bible tells us about who God is and who we are. For instance, if uh, you had a three-year-old son or daughter and you brought them to the emergency room with what you thought was hopefully just the common cold, but it turns out that they have some sort of fatal disease, the first thing that most of you would do is you would hit your knees and you would pray. And the reason that you would do that is because you believe a certain story about the world. You believe that there is a God who created the world, who interacts with the world, who is the author of this divine story and who can affect change in the world through prayer. You are understanding the story of the world in a certain way. But then if you have a neighbor who doesn't believe in God at all and in fact believes that we are just the product of both natural causes, random causes, then he would not pray. He would think that in fact he was the unfortunate recipient of nature's cold randomness. And how he sees the world will affect the things that he does, will affect the, affect the way that he thinks, 
when we are believing false stories, we can get stuck. I have a, a wacky story, uh, but this is the one that came to me when I was thinking about when I, I believed a false story. Um, it was many, many moons ago, and I was in high school, and um, we had this thing called a LAN party. See, this is when you would bring your computer over to somebody else's house, and it wasn't like you bring your laptop. Laptops, you didn't use laptops. You brought your full system, right? You filled the back of your car with everything that you needed, and you brought everything over to somebody's house, and it just wires everywhere it took over, right? I had a bunch of friends all in, in my room with all their huge computers so that we could all get together and we could play games together. And we were playing games for a long time, and then my sister, she comes into the room, and she looks at one of my friends. I had, I had some friends from school, and then I had some very close friends, and there's one friend there, we'll call him Jason. She comes into my room, she looks at Jason, and she says, I can't believe you would do that. All my friends were like, uh, this is really weird. What do you mean? He's been playing games with us. And, and my friend Jason was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, you know what you did. You disgust me. And I'm like, my sister, Crystal. I said, Crystal, he's been playing games with us. What, what's going on? What are you talking about? He knows what he did. And he's like, I don't know what she's talking about. I don't know what she's talking about. And all my friends are like, well, he's been here the whole time. What are you talking about? She leaves. She's fuming mad. I've never seen her that mad. Then my mom comes in the room. She opens the door and she says, are you serious? I'm like, what is going on? You disgust me. Pointing at Jason. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jason's been here playing games. What's going on? What's going on? And she says, he was going through your sister's drawers. So as my sister explains it, apparently she walks into her room only to see my friend Jason going through her delicates, right? That's weird. That's what, see, but we're playing games. We didn't notice this at all. And I'm thinking, no way. He's denying it. He's been here the whole time. Why would you lie about that? Why would you lie about that? And I start, getting, I start getting angry, like, I'm defending this guy, and you're believing this lie. You're believing this lie. And I start to kind of calm down, start to kind of reflect on the situation. I mean, why would my sister say that? That's just a weird thing to say. I'm thinking, well, he did leave the room to go to the bathroom, right? I, I remember that. Now that I look at him, he looks kind of creepy. <laughs> you know? It looks like something he'd do. My goodness. My goodness, he did it. He did it, right? It becomes clear to me. I was, I was believing the false story. I was believing the false narrative. I had the wrong idea. And it affected how I interact with people, like my sister, my mom. I didn't. They're, now, they're hurt, right, because I don't trust them. 
I'm defending my friend. who He's a friend from school. I didn't know him all that well. Of course, we had a falling out after that. That's a little weird. It's hard to, come, hard to bounce back from that one. You know what I mean? Hard to bounce back and be like, yeah, I know you were going through my sister's underwear drawer, but what are you doing on Saturday? <laughs> so we had a falling out. But it showed me my tendencies, the way that I act and the things that I do when I am believing the wrong things. And so the only way that we can properly view the world is if we properly understand the true story. And what I want to use is a verse I don't think any of you have ever heard before. It's John 3.16. It's really the, it's, it's the summary. It's the, the best summary of the story. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, but I want to I begin, I want to begin something that's fresh for me, because I want you all to evaluate the stories that may, maybe you're believing in your own life, um, that kind of prevent you from entering fully into God's story. See, Many of you will know this, just a, a quick, quick reminder, but my brother, when he turned 21, um, had a radical breakdown. Um, his mind um, just changed, right? Um, he became uh, megalomaniacal. Uh, he became schizophrenic, paranoid schizophrenic. Um, and he had symptoms of anisognosia, where, where you can't actually understand that you have a problem. Um, and um, he was um, prescribed antipsychotics, um, but nothing really seemed to work. He started to believe some really radical things. He ended up um, getting a um, state-mandated restraining order because he choked my dad out. Um, and so he had nowhere to go because he couldn't live with my parents. And so my wife and I at the time, uh, we tried to take him in to my place, and man, that was a hard thing to do. It was a hard thing to do because he was smashing his phone because people were listening to him. He was saying and doing really weird and bizarre things, and it was getting scary. My wife was pregnant at the time. I couldn't leave her alone. I couldn't leave her alone with him because... He wasn't the same. He wasn't the same. And when you get into a fight with somebody, you know what the best thing is is that you have an opportunity to make up. But I, I felt like with my brother is that he was so far gone in his beliefs, he didn't, he didn't even like me anymore, let alone love me, because I was some sort of Satan worshiper hell-bent on destroying him. Everybody was against him. He had all of these radical ideas about who he was. He was this Jesus figure. Everyone hated him. I was horrible. His whole family was horrible. He, like I said, he didn't like me. He certainly didn't love me. And I thought, my brother is gone. The worst feeling is, is it's like you got in a fight because I didn't treat my brother very, very well. I didn't. I was mean to him. I was not a good big brother. And it's like, man, now I never, ever will have the opportunity to make up. 
I'll never be able to fix this. I'll never have my brother back. I'll never be able to hug him. I'll never be able to, to, to hear him say, I love you and mean it. I'll never get that back. I'll never get these moments back with my brother. This is the story that I'm believing, that my brother is already gone. This disease has killed my brother, and whatever is left of him is not him. It's not. It's not. That's the story that I was believing. And I want to come back to that. Because Jesus was the greatest storyteller story because he told great stories. Um, not just because he told great stories, but because he had a great story. And God's story is true. And back to John 3.16, I, I, I use this one only because, frankly, there's never been a verse, never been a, a summary of the story that has been more influential, certainly more used than John 3.16. I believe it's the greatest verse perhaps in the Bible. It's certainly the, the best known. There are only 25 words in um, John 3.16. Uh, but it has been responsible for saving so many people. Uh, Martin Luther called it the miniature gospel. It's been called uh, the gospel in a nutshell. It's been called God's love letter written in blood and given to all. And really, if there was ever a verse in the entire Bible that Satan would want to blot out, I'm sure it would be John 3.16, because there's never been a verse that probably made hell tremble in the way that it has, because it is, like I said, been responsible for so many people coming. In, in and out Burger, too, at the bottom of their cup, has John 3.16. And many people have divided, divided John 3.16 in this way. It's the four G's. Grace, gift, gospel, glory. So it's God's grace because it's for God so loved the world. God's gift that he gave his only begotten son. God's gospel that whoever believes in him gets God's glory. That is, they have eternal life. And it's, it's, it's the brief summary of the greatest story. But we cannot see it as a great story unless we understand why we need it. And the story that comes to mind is, um, gosh, eight years ago, a little under eight years ago now, it was the fall of 2010, um, but 33 miners um, got trapped um, in a, uh, under 2,000 feet of solid rock in, in Chile. And so um, never, never have people been that deep and survived as long as they did. They were stuck down there in the dark waiting for somebody to save them. They would eat one spoonful of tuna, a sip of milk, and, and, and a meager portion of peaches every other day for two months. And up above, you had excavation crews, you had uh, experts, people working in conjunction with NASA 
to, to come up with some way of getting to them because their exit had completely gone away. They were literally under 2,000 feet of solid rock. So they had this um, 13-foot uh, capsule with a drill attached. First, they drilled a communication tunnel. And then they began to drill an excavation tunnel for this capsule. And 33 people, no one really has ever survived that long, but 33 somebodies did. There was a great-grandfather. There was uh, a 42-year-old who was planning a wedding. There was a 19-year-old kid. They all had different stories. But the one thing that they all had in common was that they realized that they needed a Savior. They needed somebody to reach down and get them in that darkness, in that 2,000-foot hole that could break the hardness, break the rock, and get them. And nobody, nobody in that communication line when they sent, hey, we're coming, said, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, give me a new drill, I got this. I don't need to be saved. No, when that capsule drilled down there, everybody got in because everybody realized that they needed to be saved. And the reality is, is that before Jesus, we were under 2,000 feet of solid rock. We needed to be saved. One of the, one of the coolest videos that I've ever uh, seen is this um, a Messianic Jew. A Messianic Jew is somebody who believes in Jesus, but it also is Jewish. And he um, runs a ministry in Israel. And he um, goes and he, he delivers the gospel message using only the Tanakh, what we know as the Old Testament. And he'll go and he'll, he'll ask uh, people off the street, um, practicing Jews, and he asks them, do you want to hear the forbidden passage? So um, many, many years ago, there was a passage that was part of what they call the Haftarah, um, which is part of the regular readings that um, Jews would do in the synagogue. Um, they would do it on Saturdays. And this this verse was taken out of, out of it. Um, and so he would go around and say, do you, want it, do you want me to tell you about the Messiah? It's in this forbidden passage. They say, well, do you have it with you? Yes, it's right here in the Tanakh. It's right here in, in, the, in your Bible. And it is Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53 um, Back uh, in the Sanhedrin, back in uh, the uh, Talmud, these are old um, Jewish um, organizations that confirm that this passage referred to the Messiah. Well, Isaiah 53 talks about somebody who's going to come and is going to be rejected by those who call themselves followers of the truth. He's going to suffer. And he's going to die for our transgressions, for 
our sins. He's going to be pierced for us. He's going to bear our stripes, right? He's going to suffer for our sake. He's going to bear all of the pain, all of the struggle, all of the problems and sickness. It's going to be put on him, even though we reject him. And then he's going to die a death that won't seem worthy, that won't seem good. It'll seem horrible. And he'll ask him, did you know this about the Messiah? Like, no, no, I've actually, I've never heard this. I've never heard this. And then he gets them to recognize using uh, passages in Ezekiel and Zechariah that, look, God is a perfect God. He's holy, so holy that he can't be around sin. Do you, do you ever sin? Right? Do you ever sin? Like if, if we were to just have a direct feed to your brain and all your thoughts were sort of on a projector for all your loved ones to see, would you be like, yeah, I'm not ashamed of any of those? I love all those thoughts. I would be like, we need to take a permanent marker and cross some of those out because I don't want you to see them. We all sin. We all sin. We all say things or think things or do things that we shouldn't do. And the Bible tells us that that causes permanent separation. We cannot be around a perfect God when we are so imperfect. And they, and they would admit, yes, absolutely. And, but God in his love, God in his love gave us this sacrificial system, right? Where they would be able to sacrifice um, a lamb or a goat or a pigeon or flour in some cases if you're really for and it. And it, would, and it would take away our sins. But in Isaiah 53, it says that the Messiah will come and will be the ultimate and last sacrifice. Well, in Daniel chapter 9, it says that the Messiah is going to come before the destruction of the second temple. That was in 70 AD. He asked him, and then he asked him, can you think of anybody? Micah says that this person will be born in Bethlehem. Can you think of anybody born in Bethlehem who came before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD who was rejected who was rejected by his people, suffered and died for the sake of everybody. And as a result of that message, many, many Gentiles would come to know the message. Can you think of anybody, anybody who did that? A lot of them were like, no, I can't. I can't think of anybody. And then you had some who were honest and said, I mean, when you put it that way, it sounds a lot like Yeshua or Yeshu, which is Jesus in Hebrew. Using only the Old Testament, we're able to create the gospel, the good news, but it always starts with the understanding that we need it, that we do things wrong. We get things wrong. We believe the wrong things. We feel the wrong things. We think the wrong things. We say the wrong things. Often. We need someone to save us. So that's the beginning. The need for the story. The need. The need. The absolute need starts with us recognizing that we are sinful. Now, let me say this. 
Um, I've, I've started creating this list um, on my wife, and the list is, this is what I call it. Things that make my wife cry. <clears throat> and it, I mean, this is not like a list that has, uh, like, when you lose a family member, when you lose a, uh, a friend or something like that. That will make most people cry, right? This is a list of things that don't make most people cry. Uh, basically, uh, are you a Campbell's Soup commercial? Yes? You will make my wife cry. Are you a, a moment of reconciliation in a romantic comedy? Yes? You will make my wife cry. Are you a Facebook advertisement that has anything remotely sad in it? Even if it's just a picture? Yes? You will make my wife cry. Are you a commercial with an animal, a baby, and sad music? You will make my wife cry. Are you a gopher or a mole or some other subterranean mammal? You will make my wife cry. Now, this is a weird one. Like, why would, why would a gopher or a mole make your wife cry? When, when I was um, working on the front yard one time at my, my home, um, I noticed, man, and it's so annoying, this, this mole hole, right, that they come up and it clods up and it ruins the lawn. It really does. So I have this hole that's like, wow, wow, I guess the grass is just ruined here, right? And it, it's so cosmetically unappealing. It's really annoying, uh, especially when it's all around the yard, right? So I'm looking at these holes and I'm talking to my wife about it and she starts crying. I'm like, what in the world? It's just What's going on? It's like not that bad, right? We can patch the lawn, all right? Get over it, right? She's like, no, 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 no. These moles are trying to come up, right? Imagine this, a mole trying to come up, but no, concrete, 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 asphalt. He just wants to surface. He just wants to get up. He can't find a place to get up. Oh, finally, finally he finds a place, and it's in somebody's yard, and they say, I don't like this. I'm going to kill it. Poor thing. Poor, poor critter. It's worth crying over, and that's why she cried, because moles have no place to rise, and when they finally do, we kill them. Lots of things make my wife cry. See, good stories can entertain us, they can make us laugh, and they certainly can make us cry. Uh, better stories can get us to think, uh, can teach us, learn us, uh, learn us, learn us new things, um, but they can really change our perspective. But the best stories, really the best stories will change us, we talked about. And I talked about last week about my professor and his heart transplant story and how that really changed my life. It changed my heart. It changed my mind regarding my own um, organ uh, donor ideas. Um, but what Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, is that if we are really buying into the Jesus story, if we're really buying into it, it'll change our lives. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. 
The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So when we look at John 3.16, the gospel in a nutshell, what I find incredibly fascinating is that it's just not God's story, it's God's story with us. It involves us. The story involves us. And those are the greatest stories. The greatest stories are the ones that include us. When my, my wife tells a story that includes her, in fact, she is so excited about them that she's just cracking up laughing before she even tells the story. In fact, the story is usually just me watching her laugh and never hearing a thing. Right? Because you, you never get as passionate, you never get as into stories when you're telling somebody else's story. But man, you get really passionate, you really get into the stories that you're a part of. It's the reason my son always wants a story that he's a part of. It starts young and it, and it stays. We want a good story that includes us because the best ones always do. I remember when I was at Universal Studios when I was really young, I remember it mostly because it was traumatizing because uh, I was old enough to know that I lived in California, but when he asked me, I got really scared. I got pulled up onto this stage where we were getting to participate in movie production, right? And he says, hey, where are you from? And I said, uh, Earth. He said, oh, Earth, okay, well, where on Earth? And I said, the United States of America, <laughs> right? And I was old enough to where I should have said, well, California, right? Nope, I'm, I'm from Earth, the United States of America. Um, but, but what was really awesome is that we got to see on this screen, like the green screen, where it looked like someone was falling, and it showed like, oh, they're falling through the clouds, and they're like, all right, now thunder, and I got to wave that big metal sheet, <sighs> And, and I was part of it. I was part of it. And I just loved it. So I remember it not just because it was traumatizing. I said the wrong thing when I was old enough to say the right thing. But also, also because I was part of it. And, and I, I, I think probably the best illustration of this, it's a weird place to find it, but the best illustration of this is actually in the Disney Pixar movie, Toy Story. Because you have, uh, who's seen Toy Story? Yeah. All right, okay. Toy Story is about toys, right? Uh, and you have this character, Woody, who's this toy cowboy, who goes up to Buzz, who's this toy astronaut, and Buzz, out of the box, doesn't know that he's a toy. He doesn't realize he's a toy. And Woody goes to Buzz, and he, he confronts him, and he says this, you're not a space ranger, you're an action figure, a child's plaything. See, but it was only after failing to fly that Buzz was confronted with the reality that he was not, in fact, a space ranger. He was indeed just a toy. And he was devastated. He was mortified. He was totally disillusioned, and he hated it. And he sat there, and he moped, and he said this, I'm just a stupid little, insignificant toy. But Woody later comes to him, and he's, he's trying to underscore the reality of the love of the boy who owns them both. And he says this, you must not be thinking clearly. Look over in that house. There's a kid who thinks you're the greatest, and it's not because you're a space ranger, it's because you're 
his. And, and, and in this moment, as Buzz lifts his foot up, and he sees that on the bottom of his foot in permanent marker is the mark, it's the ink of the little boy to whom he belongs. And when he saw this image, the image of his owner that said, you belong to me, he smiled and he took on a new dedication because he saw for the first time, for the first time, he wasn't the center of his own story where he had to conquer some alien invasion. Buzz couldn't even fly. But when he saw the ink on the bottom of the shoe, the ink that said he belonged to someone, he realized that he wasn't living in his own story. He was part of a better one. And we are part of a better story. It's the greatest story, and it involves us. Now, we just recently had Christmas, and Christmas is, of course, the celebration of Jesus' birth into this world. He came for a specific purpose, and that was a very important chapter in this story. God became man uh, so he could live among us and ultimately change the world. Uh, he came and he taught and he told stories, and at the culmination of it, he was betrayed by one of his close followers, and he died. So let's expand on that 316 summary and see some of the details. So we, we see the birth, we saw his teaching, we see his death, and then there's this very, very crucial moment, which is, which is in my mind and in, in the Apostle Paul's mind, the Bible's mind, the most important part of the story. So let's look at that. This is after Jesus' death. It's in Mark 16, chapter, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Oh, man. Okay. It says, Then the Sabbath was over. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought aromatic spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week at sunrise, they went to the tomb. So, so to give some, some setting here, um, you have um, Sabbath, which is on a Saturday. Um, so if it's the day after, it's on a Sunday. So, so the, the female followers are going to the tomb on a Sunday, and Jesus actually rode into Jerusalem to be crucified on Sunday, the Sunday prior. It's the beginning of the Holy Week. So what we have is uh, on Sunday, before the, the Sunday that the ladies are at, Jesus rides, rides in to be crucified. Then you have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Friday, the day that he was crucified. Now, this means nothing to you, the six days, but the Bible uh, uses numbers uh, in a very creative way because they had very significant meaning. Six was the number of men. It was the number of imperfection. It was the number of incompleteness. In fact, uh, in uh, Chronicles, in Second Chronicles, uh, people who were really bad, they were, they were shown as having six fingers and six toes on each hand and, and each foot. It was the number of incompleteness. So on Friday, when Jesus was crucified, it wasn't done. 
it was incomplete. On the seventh day, uh, in the Bible, the seventh day is the number of perfection and completeness. On the seventh day, Jesus was quiet. He was quiet. But what we don't hear a lot about is on the eighth day, now that Sunday, the eighth day in the Bible is signified as new beginnings. It's signified as a new beginning. And, and it's a small detail, but I don't, think it's, I don't think it's insignificant. In fact, I think it's really meant that you have on the incompleteness of it on Friday only to have a new introduction into something great on the eighth day. I think that's cool because you have this new beginning where, where Jesus dies and then something's going to happen in this new beginning. Um, and I like to read the Bible with the net translation. It's the New English translation and the uh, Greek New Testament on my, on my right-hand side. English, left, Greek, right. And when I was going through this passage, I noticed this really cool thing. Um, in, in verse 2, it says that the, the women were up very early or exceedingly early. The, the, the word here is uh, leon, leon, which um, means exceedingly, and then proi, um, early. But see, we just translated early, but this proi has a very significant meaning, a very specific meaning. And it's the time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And the technical term for that is um, the I just want to die time in the morning. Uh, because I will never, if I don't have to, get up that early. My wife knows. I'll stay in bed as long as I possibly can. There's not a chance that I'm going to get up. And if I'm up that early, I, I, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be talked to. I don't even want you to look at me. Frankly, I, I'm just not ready. It's not right. So why in the world, why in the world would Jesus have these women going to the tomb at anywhere between 3 and 6 a.m., this horrible time in the morning? Well, it's right, right at sunrise. It's, it's the perfect time to represent the end of one day and the beginning of another. It was the conclusion only to be wrapped up in a new introduction. See, you see it when Jesus was on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, uh, he had he'd been flogged. He had this crown of thorns put on his head. He had a robe put on him. He was mocked. And when he was on the cross and he was dying and he was thirsty, they put a sponge and some vinegar and they lifted up to his mouth and when he drank of it he said this he says it is finished but he but he didn't say that he was done he says it was finished because because all that needed to be done all that needed to be accomplished in order for him to begin his saving work all of that was done so you had the conclusion of one part of the story and the introduction of a new one. And it's, it's our cameo. This is where we come in. This is where we come in. He says, it's finished. The saving work can now begin. And, it's, and, and these women are being uh, um, very 
wise because when they're walking to the tomb, it says in verse 3 that they, they had been asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? So they, they realize, unlike most men, men would wait until they got there and be like, huh, haven't thought of this. Yeah, there's a really, really heavy rock that we got to move, right? But women are thinking ahead of time, they think, well, what are we going to do when we get there? Because there's that huge stone. It's like a 300-pound stone that we can't roll away. It's too big. It's too large. And then when they get there, when they get there, they realize that it's already moved. See, but remember, this is our story too. This is our story too. Is, is there a stone in your life? Is there a stone in your life that's preventing you from being the kind of person that you want to be, for embracing Jesus in the way you want to embrace him, to have the passion that you want to have? Is there something in your life, some sort of problem, some sort of addiction, some sort of depression, some sort of thing that gets in your way and you say, this is unmovable, this is impossible for me to move? Because you have that awesome thing, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled back. God got to the tomb before they did and did what they couldn't. If there is something in your life that is preventing you from the way of God, from God's story, he's already broken the power of those things. You are trying to live as the author of your own story. You are trying to live through your own power. You're trying to say, how will we move it when God has already moved it? And the cool thing is that these, these girls, they, they were going there for a ritual. It's a ritual embalming. They were going to go make Jesus smell good. They were going to go there for a ritual because the end was there. But only God can make the end into new beginnings. Because when they got there, through, a, they were going there for a ritual, but they were met with a miracle. And oftentimes, we come to church, we do the godly things, but we do it as a ritual. It's just what we do. But God wants to perform a miracle in your life. He wants to change your life. He wants to move those stones out of your life. The story of Jesus' resurrection is the story of our introduction. For God so loved the world that he gave, didn't say he sent, he gave his only begotten son. The giving was in the birth, it was in the death, and it was in the resurrection. That's the completed work of God's love to change the world. And now it's our turn. It's our turn to say whether or not we believe it. Because if we truly believe it, it will change our lives. I said I'd get back to the story of my brother. I was believing the story that my brother was already lost, that he was essentially dead. In fact, I would talk about my brother as if he was dead. And the last two weeks, every Sunday, the last two weeks, 
um, the hospital. He's at uh, the hospital in Salem. Um, they gave him release for six hours so that he could come out. And I just listened, and I just let him talk, and I heard him. And for the first time since he was 21 years old, my, I didn't say a word to him. I didn't do anything. I just listened to him. He came up to me. When I was saying goodbye, I took him back to the hospital. He came to me. He hugged me, and he said to me, thank you, I love you. And I said, that's my brother, and he's not dead. I had a stone in my life. I had a stone in my life, and God had rolled it away. See, if we believe the wrong things, if we believe the stone is still there, that's all we'll see. But if we look and we see that God has broken the power, that the stone is already rolled away, all we'll see is Jesus. And it will change our lives. That's the greatest story. And it is my hope and my prayer that you will see yourself in it. Will you pray with me? Ah, oh, God, you know how much I struggled with this one. Uh, I just pray um, that you would use it. God, I pray that you would um, allow it to be heard, that you would um, allow it to be used and I just thank you so much for how you've changed me, God, how you continue to change me. And I pray that I would practice this, God, that I would evaluate my story. I would realize the things that I'm believing that aren't true, God, that I would be influenced only by your story, that you came and you died for me to save me, God that you allow us the opportunity to have new beginnings, God, that we can have sin in our lives, things that we've done wrong, and you can look at us and say, let's start over. You give us a new beginning. God, and I pray that we would embrace that. We would see ourselves in your story, God, and we would be changed by it. You told the greatest story. You lived the greatest story, God, and we are part of it. And I love you for it. And we love you today and forever. Amen.